All right, good morning. We're here in the second week of Advent. Uh, we started last week, and um, it is the time of year that we celebrate the coming of God into our midst. We celebrate the reality that God has been made flesh, but we don't just celebrate his first coming. As we looked at last week, we celebrate really three of his comings. We celebrate the reality that one day Christ will come again and he will establish a new reality where everything is as it should be. We celebrate the reality that Christ comes into our midst right here and right now in the way that we behave and how we show forth God's kingdom as we interact with each other. We're going to be looking at that concept for the next two weeks today and next week. And of course, we celebrate the reality that Christ has come in the past. It is as if even as we um, light our candles and as they burn down lower... It is almost as if as each uh, successive week as we light our candle, the light continues to grow. You know, the light of hope is dim at times because we are waiting for reality that we do not currently have. And as the light continues to grow this Advent season, as we come closer and closer to the reality of Christ, hopefully this season we will start to reflect on how we can see Christ in our own lives and how we can prepare for his coming. The second week of Advent is traditionally a week that celebrates peace. A week, traditionally, that corresponds with text about John the Baptist. You heard two of those texts this morning from Malachi chapter 3 and uh, Isaiah chapter 40. It is traditionally a week where we focus on John the Baptist. For John the Baptist's whole purpose of existence, the reason that he came, was to prepare our hearts for the one who was coming namely Jesus. If you notice in your text, if you were listening uh, closely, you'll notice that the first text that was read this morning, uh, Malachi chapter 3, is a text of warning. It's a little bit harsh in its uh, feel, in the emotional and feel of the text. It speaks of one who is coming and how at his coming, he will be like a refiner's fire, (laughs) that the the wrong will be burnt up in the, the good will preserve, a refiner's fire or a soap. But it says, it doesn't stay completely at warning. It also says in the text that when he comes, the gifts of righteousness or the offerings of righteousness will be acceptable in his sight. The reader who is thoughtful at all thinks to themselves, well, what are these works or these sacrifices, these offerings of righteousness? The second text comes from Isaiah chapter 40, and it speaks again of the coming of John the Baptist. It is a text that's more gentle in its nature. It speaks of the frailty of man, but how even though man is frail, that God will lead mankind into a time of peace and into a time of prosperity, like a shepherd who gently leads his flock. These two motifs, they both actually speak to the same man who is to come, John the Baptist. They both begin to prepare our hearts for the coming of God. But I've been thinking a lot about this this week. There is a way of living in the present that prepares our hearts for the coming of God in a positive direction that leads to comfort and joy. And there is a way of living in the present, whether you acknowledge the coming of God or not, that leads to fear and anxiety. And so for the next two weeks, what I want to do is I want to focus on the pathway that leads to comfort and joy as we await in the present and as we behave in the present, the coming of Christ 
in our midst? How can we pay, how can we pave that pathway, a pathway that will lead to comfort and joy as we await the coming of Christ? There are two ways, and we're only look at one this week. The first way is through peace. The second way is through love. Next week, we'll look at love. So the question this morning that I really want to turn your attention, your mental focus towards, is this one. How can I prepare for the coming of God? How can I prepare for the coming of God? The ministry of John the Baptist is for the express purpose of answering this question. And so I want to turn your attention to his exact words. It's found in Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. How can I prepare for the coming of God? As you turn there, if you're using one of our Bibles, page 833, uh, as you turn there, I want to preface what we're about to read by, in this way. The coming of God is good news, but the coming of God is only good news if you are responding and relating to God in a correct way, right? The coming of God is not good news to those who are in an improper or wrong relationship to him. It's like... If you're a bank owner, the coming of the police when the bank robber is there is good news, right? If you're the bank robber, the coming of the police, not so good. Yes? The coming of God is good news, but it is not good news for everyone. The coming of God is a warning for some, and it is good news for some. The message I have for you this morning is that the coming of God can be good news to all. It can be comfort and joy for all but only if you take the pathway of peace. This is what John is going to be talking about. It is an implicit mention, or it is implied in what he talks about. He does not mention the word peace explicitly, but you will see it, because I will make sure you do by the end of the sermon. Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 18 The gospel writer Luke is one of the most historically detailed It says in Luke chapter 1, at the very beginning, that he studied the life of Jesus. He apparently wasn't actually one of the followers of Jesus. So he talked to those who followed Jesus, and he sought to make a detailed and accurate account of what Jesus said and did. So you'll notice in the beginning, there's a great deal of historical detail surrounding the events that we're about to read. In the 15th year, the reign of Tiberius Caesar... When Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria and Tractonius, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God, uh, and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country and around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare for the way of the Lord. Make straight paths for him, for every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. To yourself, we have Abraham. Father, for I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. 
What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even the tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Do not collect any more than you are required. Then the soldiers asked, what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and all were wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. His straps of his sandals I am not even worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and he proclaimed the good news to them. I always laugh at this last little section in verse 18. And he continued to proclaim the good news because the careful reader is looking at this text and thinking to themselves, I just heard what you said. None of that sounds like awful good news to me, right? It sounds pretty intense in your face judgment. Who likes in your face judgment, right? Not, not many. So here's your in-your-face judgment sermon, and it won't be too bad, I promise you. This text is talking to us about preparing our hearts for the coming of God, and it talks about really three things that we're going to see. It talks about the necessity of the preparation, it talks about the discomfort of the preparation, and it talks about the way we prepare itself. How do we prepare for the coming of God? So I want to deal with these three issues, and I'm going to do so in a punctual German manner, because that's who I am. Now, here we go. First, the necessity of preparation. How we prepare for the coming of God is really, really important. And the way we do this, according to John, is that we begin to name and deal with evil. We begin to name and deal with sin. It is almost as if John's message in the wilderness, the message that he is proclaiming, is a message of self-evaluation and self-reflection. It is an opportunity for those who hear him to evaluate their lives, to see themselves accurately, and then not to just stay that way, but it is an invitation to change. You know what's really interesting? John is not preaching. He did not set up his, you know, his preaching ministry in Jerusalem. He sets it up a long journey away from the city of Jerusalem. It would have taken them a long time to travel there. He's out in the wilderness near the Jordan River. And yet, John, who is proclaiming a message of judgment, is a man who is gathering great crowds It's like uh, the great restaurant in the middle of nowhere that everybody drives two hours to go to because it's so good. They don't even care that it's in, you know, short track because they want to go and have pancakes and sausage at the Maple Tree Inn, right? There's nothing around there, but I make make an hour and a half drive every year because I like that sausage and I like those pancakes. But John is not serving pancakes and sausage, is he? And yet he is still gathering a crowd. Why? Why? He gathers a crowd when his message is a message of judgment because he is preparing 
the way for God. I still believe it today that people have a desperate desire to see God. Those of us who have experienced and understood what Christ has done for us and have placed our trust in Christ, don't we have a desperate desire to see God? Sometimes there are people, and you might get the feel from them, that they have God figured out, and they don't seem quite as desperate. (laughs) But don't you want to desperately see God? None of us have him completely figured out. We're all dealing with incomplete information as it pertains to God. And yet, for those of us even who have tasted of the grace, of the gift of what Jesus has done for us in forgiving our sins, don't you wish to have a closer taste? Don't you wish to get closer to God? And yet there are all, all kinds of people that come to church that don't even know if they believe it is true, but are hoping it might be so. People have a desperate desire to see God, and some people act as if they don't, as if, um, as if pretending that they don't care takes away the desire, you know? Like the teenage boy who asks a girl out, and the girl says no and says, well, I didn't want to go out with her anyway. Yeah? There was once a story I heard. Um, this guy had taken his friend to a, to a, um, a youth event in which the gospel was proclaimed, the good news of what Jesus has done. And after the event, he'd been praying for his friend. And after the event, uh, they were driving home in his truck. And they, he was driving home. And he stopped on the top of a hill. And he turned to his friend. And he said, well, what'd you think about that? And the friend says, well, that was just a load of garbage, you know? That was a load of garbage. And the friend was crushed, you know? He'd been praying for his friend. He'd finally got him out to come and invite. And the story went, a week later, and it doesn't always happen this way. There's no always in any of these kinds of stories. A week later, the friend turned to his buddy and said, you know when I told you that was a load of garbage? I've been thinking about the message of grace and the goodness of God the entire week. I just didn't want to admit it. I cannot believe that Jesus has died for our sins and that it's just so hard to believe. The message of grace. The message of judgment is like a two-sided coin. On the one side, there is judgment for those who refuse to move in the direction of God. And the message of judgment is not so much because God longs to judge uh, humanity, but because God does not force people like robots to do and behave a certain way, he allows us to choose. But the coming of God necessarily must be prepared for. It must be prepared for us by looking in the mirror and acknowledging our sin. It's really easy for us to acknowledge sin in a general way. Our world is sinful. We look at the the TV. The world is not the way it should be. It's really good to, to, to look at the world in general and say it's not the way it should be. John is not calling the people he is preaching to to see the macro world, and acknowledge that it's not the way it should be. He's not doing that. He's challenging you and me as individuals. So this isn't where we turn to the person next to us and we say, yeah, you got problems. This is the place where we look in the mirror of our hearts and we say, I have problems. That is how we prepare for the way and the coming of God But that process brings us to the second kind of aspect of what we're looking at in this text. That aspect brings us to the reality front and center with 
the coming of God, we must necessarily pray for it, but the ne- or necessarily prepare for it. But that preparation means we are starting to name and deal with our own evil and sin. And that is an uncomfortable process, isn't it? It's just uncomfortable. We see in our text that this text is filled with discomfort. In fact, the very way that Luke records that John begins his preaching, his sermon, is he says this, right? You can see it with your own eyeballs. Verse 7, you brood of vipers, right? You descendants of snakes, you know? If I did that every week starting my sermons, nobody would come back here. Preacher, I want to feel good. Well, I want you to feel good too, but, you know, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? This is Luke's account. In Matthew's account of these same events, who's just another man recording it, he gives us a little more detail. And do you know who John is addressing when he scans the crowds according to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, verse 7? He's addressing a group of people called the Sadducees and the Pharisees who were the religious leaders of that day. He's looking at all the gathered crowds of the people who have come out to listen to him. And he turns his eyeballs towards those who are religious. And he says to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to come? Notice with me in the text that he gives other strong judgment. He talks to them about the reality that one day the wheat and the chaff will be separated. Uh, Verse 17, in the chaff, the weeds will be burned up in the fire. He talks about in verse 9 how an axe is already laid to the tree and it's going to be cut down. The implication is if you don't change, you're going to be cut down. But he's looking at the religious people. It occurs to me that there is a way to listen to the words of God in such a way that you are simply trying to affirm what you already think and what you already know. And there is a way of listening to the word of God in which we are humble and we ask God, show me where I need to change. But it is not the Pharisees and the Sadducees, it is not the religious leaders that turn to John after his uncomfortable proclamation of you brood of vipers. In verse 10, it is not the Sadducees and Pharisees, it is not the religious leaders, It is the common crowd, the everyday folk and the sinners who turn their attention to John's words, who hear his message of judgment and who say, verse 10, the most natural question in the world, right? If it is true that the axe is already laid to the tree, what should I then do? His question is very much the same one that we brought up this morning. How do we then prepare for God's coming? If it is true that judgment is real, how do we prepare for the coming of God? And John's answer is astonishingly simple, and it is crystal clear. John does not say, well, go into your closet, silently meditate for a while, and maybe God will reveal himself to you, right? John says to them, repent. (laughs) Repent. Change the direction you are going and move the other direction. Repent. This is all that repentance means. I can illustrate it very simply, both negatively and positively. 
the husband who always is doing stupid little things his wife doesn't like. And every single day he says, I'm sorry, honey. And then the next day he does it. This is not repentance. Because sorry is not repentance, right? Sorry is I wish I wouldn't have got caught, but I really wanted to do what I did. Repentance is sorry moving the other direction. Sorry moving the other direction. But repentance is not just an arbitrary thing. Repentance, according to John, and according to the Gospel of John, or according to John the Baptist, as we have recorded in Luke, is astonishingly simple and crystal clear. For although the religious leaders didn't even ask anything, and they're being critical, the crowds, the tax collectors, and the soldiers who have gathered to hear John speak ask, what should we do? The answer is repent, but the repentance is spelled out for them in relational terms. And it is very simple. To the crowds, he says, if you have two shirts and you see someone who doesn't have a shirt, give them one of your shirts. You know, like that's what repentance looks like. If you have too much food, if you have food and you see someone who doesn't have food, give them some food. The tax collectors are kind of catching on. And the tax collectors, who, by the way, are the dregs of humanity in the ancient world, everybody hates the tax collectors. Because at least in America today, taxes have a code of rules and, you know, like they're bound by those rules. Taxes in those days were just people who were told they need a certain amount and were told you can legal, you know, you have our permission to take however much you want from the people and keep the extra. The tax collectors lived in villas. The people they collected from lived in hovels, you know. They lived in destitution. The tax collectors say, what should we do? John says, do not take more taxes than you're required to. Do not pad your pockets with the money of the poor. The soldiers respond. The men who look good in uniform, right? The ones who have power and authority that comes with that uniform. They say, what should we do? And John says, don't accuse people falsely and don't extort them. Don't use your power for your benefit. Do what is right and do what is fair. The work of repentance is a work of compassion, right? Sharing your clothes and food, compassion. And it is a work of fairness. It is a work of compassion. It is a work of fairness. The one who prepares the way for the coming of God is the one who does the work of repentance. These illustrations, you know, food, shirts, tax collectors not taking more than they're supposed to, soldiers not extorting, uh, is not a comprehensive look. It is a representative one, you know? (laughs) What should any worker do? You know, what should the, the mechanic do? You know, the mechanics rise up. In light of the fact that God is coming, what should we do? Fix cars and don't fix problems that don't exist by people who don't know about them right? A mechanic could say anything, and I'd just nod my head and say, sure, right? What should the doctors do? Do their best to heal and do it fairly, not take advantage of insurance. What should the bakers do? Cook their best bread they can, (laughs) you know? What should the pastors do? 
be kind to everybody no matter what? Accurately reflect what the word of God says? You know, do you see, what does the engineers do? Make bridges that hold up. Don't cut corners on cost, but don't charge extra either. When we do the work of repentance, we prepare our hearts for the coming of God. Notice, though, that the work of repentance is not the same thing as salvation. It is not. It'd be easy to get this confused, but it is not. The work of repentance is a soft-hearted attitude towards compassion and fairness relationally that positions us to see and receive God. There's a very famous story. It's told in the same gospel, the gospel of Luke, uh, about a man who was very short. His name was Zacchaeus. And if you grew up in church, you maybe even sang a song about him, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He lived in Jericho, a city uh, on the other side of the Jordan, in the, than the, um, uh, a city by the Jordan, um, away from Jerusalem. And one day Jesus came to Jericho. And wherever Jesus went, people wanted to see. Have you ever been uh, at a, a concert or somewhere where you got the stage and you really want to see the person and someone really tall sits in front of you and you can't see anything and you're craning your neck the whole way? Well, it didn't really matter who sat in front of Zacchaeus. He was small. No amount of craning was going to do it. And so Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus. And so he climbed up a sycamore tree and he looks down and he sees Jesus. And as Jesus is walking down the path through Jericho, he sees Zacchaeus up in that tree. And he says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to go to dinner with you. And I know what all the people were thinking. They're thinking the exact stuff I was telling you earlier. You know, tax collectors are the dregs of society. Why would you go eat with him? I'm actually a decent human being. Why don't you come eat with me? I'd like to eat with you. And... Jesus says, I'm going to go eat with you. Even in this little episode, we're not given very many details. It's Luke 19, 1 through 10. We are given this detail. That when Jesus comes to eat with him, Zacchaeus of his own free will says this. Master, I will give half of my possessions away to the poor. And those people that I have mistreated and I've taken more money than I should have, I will pay them back four times what I took. And Jesus looks at him and says, today salvation has come to this house. Is Jesus saying that salvation comes by giving half of your possessions away to the poor, and that salvation comes through paying back four times the money that you took from somebody? He is not. He is saying, I believe that the heart of repentance that Z Zacchaeus emulates here is a repentance that leads to us seeing God. To us seeing God. Repentance is a means of preparation. A preparation for seeing the coming of God. And repentance leads to peace. And peace leads to comfort and joy. Without repentance, there is no peace. Without repentance, there is no peace. And I've never met a single person in my life who has a lack of peace that is filled with comfort and joy. 
Repentance means we start to right what is wrong relationally. It is not esoteric. It is not difficult to understand. It means we start to honor, respect, treat with compassion and fairness the people around us. We turn in the other direction. If we're going this way, we don't say sorry and continue to do it. We say sorry and we go the other way. Imagine with me that we're both in the same room and I see from a distance you're over there and I'm over here and my kid's over there and I see you push down my kid on the floor and then just keep walking up to me and say, hey, do you want to come out for coffee? You see what I'm saying? I would say, you know what? We can talk about coffee in a second, but I think you just pushed down my kid and stepped on him. So maybe we should deal with that first, right? Repentance means we're dealing with the crazy stuff that we've done wrong because by, ooh, through seeing, that's a good, actually good with my sermon warning. <laughs> when we see the crazy stuff we've done and we say, that's crazy and I'm not going to do it anymore, it prepares our heart to receive the gracious goodness of God. Because God came when our heavenly father sent his son and Jesus came to this world, perfect God and perfect man. And Jesus lived the life we should have lived but didn't. And he died for our sins in our place. And then to prove that it is true, he rose from the dead. And every Easter we celebrate that, and we're getting to that. And from now, from that time until now, those who believe in Jesus are those who believe that we have everything because of what he's done and not because of what we've done. That's salvation. Trust in Christ and what he's done. Repentance is saying, I know what you've done for me. That while I was still a sinner, you died for me. Now, I'm going to treat others in the same way that you've treated me. Repentance leads to peace. And without peace, there is no comfort and joy. When we live in a state of relational harmony, of relational connectedness, Will we make right the things that we've done wrong? And we will do wrong. Of course we'll do wrong. We make it right. We experience peace. And that peace leads to comfort and joy. It is this that really we celebrate this morning as we conclude our services by all coming forward to receive from the elements that symbolize Christ's broken body and his shed blood. For as we come forward just in a moment this morning, we do so... We do so to acknowledge and to invite God to transform us. So let's pray this morning. Father, as we prepare our hearts for the communion table, I pray that you might uh, I pray that you might do a work in our hearts and in our lives to help us to make right the things that are wrong out of a love and gratitude for what you have already done for us. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.